Well, good evening. Once again, let me add my own welcome, please, to the welcome you've already had from the saints here at Midland Park. We're very encouraged to see you all. Uh, we're going to continue tonight as the Lord gives help in our study of the glory of God revealed in the church. And particularly, we've been looking at the way in which the church is linked very clearly with creatorial order. And uh, I want to draw your attention uh, at the start of this evening to Genesis chapter 1, please. And we'll just have a little refresh of what we have covered and then move on uh, in the study as the Lord gives help. So Genesis chapter 1 <clears throat> And uh, the very familiar first verse of the chapter says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then, follow me as we just skip down through these verses. Verse 2, and the earth. Halfway through the verse, and the Spirit of God moved. Verse 3, and God said, Verse 4, and God saw. Verse 5, and God called. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 7, and God made. You can follow those verses down. You see how there's the repetition, and, 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 and. You say, well, so what? Well, is it not teaching us <clears throat> that God is building something? To one thing he adds another. One thing leads on to another. There is structure. There is order. It wasn't just that God spoke and um, suddenly everything just came into being in an ordered universe. It didn't happen that way. We mentioned last night that there is a particular Hebrew word, the word bara. It is a word that means to create in the sense that we would understand the word. It's um, only used in three verses of Genesis chapter 1. So, so God called out of nothing material, and then he's going to fashion it, and he's going to fashion the, the environment in which it's all going to be. It's all done in an order, and, 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 because he's building something. Then when you come into chapter 2, uh, <coughs> there is the detail of chapter 1 comes to an end uh, in verse 4 of chapter 2. That verse says, verse 4 of chapter 2, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Incidentally, I think we've mentioned already that the Lord Jesus is the one who is uh, credited in the Bible with the actual creation of everything. Uh, Paul, writing to the Colossians, makes that very clear. He says that everything was by him and through him and for him and in him. And then John also, in his Gospel, speaks of the fact that uh, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So when you think of that expression, all things were made by him, that is Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. Is John just saying the same thing in two different ways? No, he's not. What he's really saying is this, all things were made by him, and apart from him, there was nothing made that was made. The idea being this. Yes, he made everything. But apart from Christ, apart from God's purpose to glorify Christ, and Christ in turn to glorify the Father, apart from Christ, nothing was made. 
It's talking about its purpose. Everything was made by him, but everything was made for him. Apart from Christ, there was nothing made that was made. It was all made with a view to the glory of Christ. Now, we can't see that. In our fallen condition, we can't discern that. I suppose maybe Adam could to a degree, if not in totality. But we have lost that. You see, evidently in creation, uh, again, you get used to me saying these kind of things. I'm not being irreverent when I say it. God didn't say, well, let's just add a little splash of color over here. Uh, Let's just make something to balance up the scene over there. He's a God of order, and he's a God of precision, as we saw last night from 1 Corinthians 12. So in the great, vast, divine design of everything that constitutes the universe in which we live. Nothing but nothing was made for its own sake. It was all made for Christ. It was all made to magnify Christ. It was all made to illustrate Christ and to reveal Christ. So all things were made by him, but apart from him, there was nothing made that was made. He is the author of it all and the originator of it all, but he's also the subject of it all. So in the very way that God is constructing things in Genesis chapter 1, he's building it in such a way that Christ will be glorified. So chapter 1 is very much about the building. Then when you come to chapter 2, and uh, we read in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we move on from the thought of the building to the body. God prepares a body. And that's particularly what we were thinking about last evening. But then when he has made the body, the bulk of chapter 2 is all about God dealing with Adam in solo, Adam by himself. And... uh, Then, in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And so those last verses of chapter 2 are all about his bride. So very simple, Genesis 1, the building. God is building the heavens and the earth. Well, the earth especially. And, 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 and. One thing after the other, God is building. Chapter 2, the preparation of a body. And again in chapter 2, the provision of a bride. So it's not coincidental, is it, when we turn to our Ephesian epistle, which you will remember from Monday evening, is that epistle which deals with the church in its entirety what we might call the dispensational church, the church of this age in which we live. And as we read about the church, we read in chapter 1 particularly about the sovereign purpose of God, and then in chapter 2 we read that God is preparing a building, a holy habitation for himself through the Spirit. So there's a building in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Then in chapter 4, He's dealing with a body. And he explains how that that body is growing up unto maturity. And when it reaches maturity, the church age will be complete. But when you come to chapter 5, he's speaking about a bride. So the Ephesian epistle, where we are taught about God's purpose for the church in its entirety, is very closely mirroring the opening chapters of our Bible. God is building... He's preparing a body, and he's preparing a bride. So then when we look again into these important chapters, uh, you will find in chapter 1 of Genesis that we simply have the statement in verse 27, well, verse 26. Let's read verse 26 together of Genesis 1. And God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So there we have the intention of God in verse 26, and we have the origin of man in verse 27. Very simple, very short, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And when you come into chapter 2, we have a more detailed explanation. And from verse 7, uh, we have this detail, not only of how God made the man, but how he set him in the garden, and how he spoke to him, and so on. <coughs> so why do we have this repetition? We actually have it at the end of this section of Genesis as well, which you might recall, this section finishes in chapter 11. Genesis 1 to 11 are the first section of the book of Genesis, and they cover the first half of all Old Testament history. They cover a period of 2,000 years. So that very important first section of our Bible, Genesis 1 to 11, uh, 2,000 years of history, and at the end of it, we have in Genesis 10, uh, just a statement that God divided the earth, and it speaks about the different nations that were there. But because that was such a momentous thing, the division of mankind into nations, and this, the beginning of the division of the actual uh, tectonic plates of the earth. Because it was such an important event, Genesis chapter 11 is written to explain that detail of chapter 10. So in chapter 10, you've got the, the short version. You've just got the bold statements of fact. Genesis 11 is there to explain why God did what he did in Genesis chapter 10. So in a similar way, in Genesis 1, we've got the simple statements of the order in which God built the earth, in which the building took place. We've got that order. But now it's as though the Spirit of God is saying, once we've come to chapter 2, and uh, we have had this summary in verse 4, the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And it's as though the Spirit of God then comes back and he says, now look, I want to show you something very important. Very important. And he launches, well, no, not launches, he takes us into the truth of the creation of the man. Now, <clears throat> the important distinction is this. In Genesis chapter 1, the emphasis is on the fact that man, we might say man with a capital M, man as a race, is made up of male and female. And from the way in which it's described in Genesis chapter 1, there is no distinction between the male and the female as far as status is concerned. Just let these dear ladies come in. Pleased to see you. So in Genesis chapter 1, the emphasis is on the unity between the male and the female. It is the male and the female that together make man as a race, man with a capital M. And God speaks to them. And he says, now look, I've put dominion into your hands together. The exercise of dominion over the works of my hands is, is a, a work which is to be shared equally between the male and the female. 
That's the creatorial order. Them. 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 But now when we come to chapter 2, the Spirit of God starts to take us back over some of that ground and he says, look, I want to show you something very important. Although, although God put the exercise of dominion into the hands of the male and the female together, accountability for how that exercise of dominion is handled belongs to the male alone. That's why in chapter 2, the Spirit of God records for us that God formed the man, the male, from the dust of the earth. And, and he spoke to the male. The Lord God took the man, the man, Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, verse 15. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God is speaking to the male. Where's Eve? She hasn't been made yet. This is the great detail that the Spirit of God is now explaining in chapter 2 that is not there in chapter 1. He's saying now, yes, God gave dominion and its exercise, its work, into the hands of them both, equally. But accountability to God lies with the male. See, if you and I had written this story, this account, I think what we would have done is said, well, all right, let's make man out of the dust of the earth, just to show that uh, man is but dust and God is God. So, okay, the man is made out of the dust of the ground. Now let's make the female for him, so that man, with a capital M, is complete. And, and then let's stand them both, because they've both got to exercise dominion together. Let's stand them both there, and now let's say to them both, now listen, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but. But God didn't do it that way. And the very fact that he didn't do it that way, and the Spirit of God takes this, this portion of chapter 2 to explain it to us, says that this is something we should be concentrating on. In a section of the Bible, which deals with such a long period of time in such a short space, the fact that the Spirit of God would call our attention to a detail like this means he wants us to take notice. Now what is being unfolded here lies in the truth that is there in verse 26 of chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The, the plural word is used because the emphasis is on the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all working in harmony and they're speaking together and they're saying, now let us do something wonderful we're going to, to make a man, we're going to create a being, and he's going to be made in our image and after our likeness. Now, the thought of man being in the image of God um, is, is the thought that he was made as a divine representative. Not an image in the sense that um, you have a little statue or something like this. The, the thought of the image of God, well, in fact, the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint, it uses the word icon. Icon. And uh, those of the younger ones, particularly, I know you older ones are pretty computer literate, some of you, but, but certainly for the younger ones, they'd be used to the idea of an icon on a computer screen. That, that icon simply represents the program they want to use. So, so that's the thought in which it's used here. God says, now, the, the man we're going to create, he's going to be our icon. He's going to be our image. He's going to be our representative in the world that we create. And as such, he's going to have authority delegated to him so that he exercises control over and dominion over all the works of our hands. What a mighty position man was put in. But he's not only going to be our representative, God said, 
but he's going to be made in our likeness. So there's going to be a resemblance. A resemblance between God and the creature that he makes. And the, the chief resemblance, I judge, is that just as God is three persons in one being, so Adam would become a tripartite being himself. He would be one man, but made up of three distinct elements. He would be body, soul, and spirit. And uh, the spirit would be that, that spirit of life. Now, the creatures had a spirit of life. The cows and the dogs and the chickens, they, they had a body and they have the spirit of life. They don't have a soul. That was unique to the man. That's why God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And that soul, as we know, is the real person. The body but the vehicle in which that soul uh, is conveyed through the course of time. And in the event of the person dying, as all must as a consequence of sin, then the spirit returns to God that gave it, and the body goes into the grave to await resurrection, and the soul departs, in our case as believers, to be with Christ, which is very far better, or in the case of an unbeliever, the soul goes into hell. There to await the resurrection of the body and being reunited with that body so that that person will stand before the great white throne of judgment. That's how God made man. Unique. And so he's made us not only to represent him, but to have a resemblance to him. And because man is primarily a spirit being, a spiritual being, I should say, he's a spiritual being, that the man is controlled by what he is spiritually. That's what ultimately controls you and controls me. The, the spiritual element of the person controls the moral element of the person. Now that morality God gave to man uniquely. That is, we can share God's thoughts and God's values and God's estimation of things. A brute beast doesn't do that. A brute beast can't do that. So God made us that we could, for example, we can appreciate beautiful things. A brute beast doesn't do that. A dear lady or gentleman in the congregation tonight, you could spend, you could spend hours tending your flower bed in your garden and everything's just absolutely beautiful and you can appreciate it and it's so wonderful and during the night a deer comes in and what it doesn't eat, it tramples. See, it doesn't appreciate that. The deer has no moral sense at all. It's simply a body generated by the spirit of life. But we're moral beings. Body, soul, and spirit. And so God gives a reflection of himself in the very thing that he's created. Let us make man after our own image, in our own likeness. So, Adam was a truly, truly wonderful being. There, there, was, there was the ability on Adam's part, for this is how God made him, to not only appreciate God, but to have fellowship with God. And that's how God could speak to him. And that's what he does. Um, I suppose some of you here, if you liked fashionable things, you will know that a designer, let's take a designer of, I don't know, ladies' handbags or even cars or whatever. A designer in seeking greatness, a designer will feel that they have arrived at the top of their profession when they no longer have to put their name on the object that they design. Is that true, isn't it? I mean, as far as I'm aware... And you can tell I'm no great follower of fashion, but um, as far as I'm aware, you know, you buy the most expensive handbags or shoes or something like this. And other people who are into that, they will be able to see just by the style and the cut and everything else that 
that was designed by so-and-so. There isn't a big name on it that says so. Uh, well, I think that's how it works. You know, I, I was saying to somebody recently, I, I can never remember the difference between Prada and Primark. So I get into trouble on birthdays and Christmas and things like that, you know. But, but there is, you know, th that's, that's the goal of every designer. Design something that is so unique, so beautiful, that, that it, it, reflects, it reflects all their energy and, uh, and skill and, and thought that they've put into this thing. Well, do you know, that's what God did. I mean, we've spoken about the fact in Genesis 1 and 2, reflected in the Ephesian epistle, a building and a body and a bride. And then when you think of the building work that God does through Scripture, uh, the creation, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple, and now the church, the first thing that God did in building the universe, building this world, he said, let there be light. And when the tabernacle was finished, the glory of the Lord filled the place. Exodus 40, there was light. When the temple was finished, exactly the same was true. The glory of the Lord filled the place. So, so a link with the building is the thought of light. With the body... Very simply, there's the thought of life. And with the bride, there's the thought of love. So God is impressed on creation in Genesis 1 and 2, in the building and the body and the bride. He, he's impressed upon it light and life and love. And those are three things the Bible tells us God is. It doesn't say he has them. He is them. God is light. In him is no shadow of turning. God is life. And thank God God is love. So you see, the great designer of all things has put his imprint upon the very way he has done it. Light, life, and love. Something else about his character God has done. He, he is a God of tremendous grace. We've proved that, haven't we? But he's also a God of government. So the God who is love is also a God who is righteous. And, and the very God who has been offended by our sins is the same God who has provided a means of delivering us from those sins. So the government of God and the grace of God, the two things go together. So now we come to Genesis 2 again, and God's going to speak to Adam, and the first thing he says is an expression of his grace. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But, but, now the government of God is going to be introduced. And the grace of God and the government of God perfectly revealed, of course, in the Lord Jesus. John said, we beheld his glory. The glory is of an only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now God shows us that about himself in chapter 2. And he says, now here's the grace. You can freely eat of every tree of the garden. But here's the government. Here's the truth. But, but. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And he's speaking to man. He's speaking to Adam. He's speaking to the male. And only the male is alive on the face of the earth. There isn't a female yet. Eve hasn't been made. So the very fact that this God of order, of chapter 1, and, 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 he's showing us that there's an order in this. God said, I have very deliberately made the man out of the dust of the earth, the male, and now I'm going to speak to the male, and I'm going to show him my grace, and I'm going to show him my government, and then I'm going to give him the partner and the consort and the companion that he needs in order to exercise dominion. God is very clearly teaching that when it comes to accountability, the male stands alone before God. Now that is the great principle of headship. 
Simple, really, isn't it? It's the great principle of headship. That here is the male and the female, here are the male and the female, in the sight of God and the purpose of God, absolutely equal. But, accountability lies with the male. Now, why is it like that? Because that's how God is. That's why when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the opening of that great section that deals so uh, particularly with local church order, and when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the creatorial principle is stated. Paul says, I would have you know, in verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Now, very clearly, there is no difference in status between Christ and the Father. There's no difference between them as far as status is concerned. So what we're learning here in this principle of headship, which is the very first for the Spirit of God to lay on the page of Scripture, it's being reflected in the very order of creation, and it was that principle which the devil very deliberately went against in chapter 3. He came and he spoke to the woman. He said, yeah, but I read a book somewhere and it said that Adam was off doing other things and he shouldn't have left his wife alone. And it, Well, if you've got a book that tells you that, just throw it away. It's wrong. And it's not me saying it's wrong. It's verse 6 of chapter 3 saying it's wrong. Because verse 6 of chapter 3 tells me that the husband was with her. He was there. Adam was there. So he was there when the devil came in the form of the serpent, which at that time would have been a glorious creature. And he comes in the form of the serpent and, and he starts to... He starts to undermine the truth of the word of God and he does so with the woman. And remember, the woman wasn't even there when God spoke. She wasn't even made. So he's very deliberate about it, isn't he? Adam was there. He could have come and spoke to Adam. I suppose, I suppose that uh, this was not the first time the serpent had communicated with them. I, I would equally suppose, and don't think me being too fanciful, I would equally suppose from chapter 2 that when the Lord caused all the different beasts, the fowls of the air and the beasts, they came before Adam and he gave names to them all. He didn't just name them. He gave names to them all, the Bible says. That means he communicated with them. So, I mean, it seems a bit almost humorous, the thought of Adam speaking monkey and speaking giraffe. And, you know, it seems humorous. But no, you see, God is a God of order. So if this man, this creature that he's just made out of the dust of the ground and made uniquely different from everybody else, everything else, because this man is going to, he's going to be the image of God and he's going to be made in the resemblance of God. It's a glorious creature. Uh, says Psalm 8, he's going to, God is going to give to him glory and honor and dominion. So now, if Adam is going to have dominion over all these works of God's hands and over all these creatures, God is going to bring those creatures, representatives of them, before Adam. And he's going to look at them, and he's going to speak with them, and he's going to name them. He's going to give to them their names. He is, he is exercising his dominion. And amongst them all, there wasn't a help that was suitable for him. So Adam begins to exercise the dominion God had, gave him, had given him. But when the serpent comes and speaks in chapter 3, Adam seems to take no notice. Seems to be complacent about it. And yet he shouldn't have been complacent about it because the scripture says that uh, the Lord God had made Adam out of the dust of the earth 
he put him in the garden and he he gave him charge, verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. Why? Well, the thought of dressing it, keeping it beautiful, it would have been so, uh, so uh, well, the, the growth would have been so energetic and so wonderful. There's no curse upon the earth yet. And so Adam is to dress it. He, he just beautifies the whole thing. But God says, keep it as well. And that word keep is a word that means to guard. To guard as with a military guard. Oh dear. A cloud comes over the scene. Why would God tell Adam to guard this garden? The fall hasn't taken place. No, the fall hasn't taken place as we call it. But sin has originated. And sin by this time has already originated in the heavens. And it's originated amongst the angelic realm it's originated in, in the being of that angel described for us in Ezekiel chapter 28 and again in Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, and there's an angel that with all the other angels according to Job chapter 38 is watching and uh, is rejoicing as this creation is taking place. And there is a jealousy arising in the heart of this angel. And I suppose that at the moment that God made man from the dust of the earth, a creature that clearly was nothing like as wonderful and powerful as this anointed cherub that covered in the very presence of God, as this angelic being witnesses a creature being fashioned from the dust of the ground, and then, and then, to his mounting horror and jealousy, it would seem, God doesn't give dominion over the works of his hands to this great angelic being. He puts it into the hands of the man. And he gives the man the clearly lower order in creation. He gives to him glory and honor and dominion. Now we know from the Bible, from Matthew chapter 13, for example, that, that when God laid the foundations of the world, he commenced a kingdom program. The kingdom which is from the foundation of the world, says Matthew 13. So this kingdom program gets underway and the, the question arises, who's going to sit on the throne of that kingdom? Now very interestingly, I'm not making this up, you can check it for yourself. Very interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 14, where this angelic being, five times over he says, I will, I will, I will. He's exercising his own will. He's stepping out of the appointed place that God had given him. And, and the central one of those I wills in Isaiah chapter 14, he says, I will ascend into the sides of the north. Now, whatever that strange expression may mean, doesn't really matter for the moment. The point is, it's only mentioned once else in your Bible. And that's in Psalm 48. And Psalm 48 is very clearly a millennial psalm. It's very clearly a psalm about the future city of Zion, which will be the center of world administration and will be the center of world worship in the days when the Lord Jesus establishes his kingdom upon the earth. Zion, the city of the great king. Beautiful for situation, says Psalm 48. Where? In the sides of the north. That's the expression that Satan used in Isaiah 14. I will ascend into the sides of the north. So right at the very beginning, before the fall of Genesis chapter 3, there was an angelic being that said in its heart, that throne of that kingdom will be mine. I'm going to have it. Now thank God, God had already spoken. 
And it's recorded in Psalm number 2. And God says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So God has his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, ready for the throne in Zion. No question, he'll be there. But before Genesis chapter 3 ever occurred, there was that angelic being that said, I will ascend into the sides of the north. And that's where this great cosmic conflict began. This great conflict between good and evil, between the devil and the purpose of God. And so the devil, pursuing his ambition to have this throne and dominion, he's a glorious creature, but the glory doesn't belong to him. He's only glorious all the time he's associated with the light of the throne room of heaven. He doesn't have any honor of his own. He doesn't have dominion. These are the things he prizes. And God's given them all into the hands of a man. And so he comes by stealth. And he comes by subtlety. And he comes deliberately disobeying the clear divine order that in this first man and woman on the face of the earth, the man is the one who's accountable to God. And he comes to the woman who wasn't even there when God spoke, and he says, Yea, hath God said? It very quickly became apparent that the woman didn't know exactly what God had said. For according to the biblical record, she both added to and subtracted from what God had said. And as soon as the devil realized that this woman didn't know accurately what God had said, having, having cast doubt on God's word, and she had distorted God's word, he then had no trouble in denying God's word. You will not surely die. You haven't to worry about that. You won't surely die. He says, you see, the kind of God you have, he knows, he knows that if you exercise your own will, that you will become as gods. Not knowing good and evil, as the authorized Bible says, but, but determining. You see, this is, what, this is the carrot he put in front of her. He said, now, if you exercise your own will, then you will become as gods yourselves. You will be the ones determining what is right and wrong. Why do you take his word for it? What kind of God have you got anyway who would deny you that tree? He still works like that today, by the way. The enemy of your soul will never bring you your attention to the grace of God. He'll always bring your attention to what seem to be the negative things. What kind of God have you got that wouldn't let you have this? Wouldn't let you do that? He'll never bring your attention to the grace of God that is so freely given everything else. So this one who is a liar and the father of lies, he, he now, through this process, he cast doubt on the word of God. She distorted the word of God. He denies the word of God. And so now, what happens? Well, Eve has stood away from the, the trustworthy ground of the word of God. She stepped away from the word of God and now a profound change happens. That profound change affects her morality. That is the way she thinks. The spiritual, the moral, the physical. Man in the likeness of God, the resemblance of God. And the spiritual controls her. Now that she's lost the spiritual battle, so now her morality changes. That tree that was an object of prohibition and fear... Neither must we touch it, neither may we touch it, she said. No record that God had said that. She's afraid of that tree. We mustn't even so much as touch it. And now what happens? As soon as she stay, stands away from the word of God, when she saw that the tree was good for food, the tree that's desirable, and the thing that was the object of fear a few moments ago is attractive now. This is how you work, my brother, my sister. This is how I work. Important lessons, these. For what we are spiritually, our spiritual state will always control our morality, the values, the thoughts that we have. 
And what did she do? She reached out, she took. She did what she would never have done before. So her actions, her physical actions, have been controlled by the change in her attitude to the word of God and the way that affected her thinking, and now she's done what she never dreamed she would have done. And that's how you and I make mistakes, isn't it? We just take a day or two off and we neglect the word of God and we we no longer read it as, as regularly as we used to do and we're not giving the word of God its place and that will, are you listening now please? Not maybe, it will, it will, it will definitely affect your morality. It will affect your thinking. And the longer you leave and neglect your Bible the more worldly your thinking will become. Not if, not maybe. I'm not being rude. I'm just saying what the Bible says. This is how we work. This is how we're engineered. This is how God designed us. The spiritual affects the moral, and the moral affects the physical. It's always been like that. It always will be. That's why when the Lord Jesus came and was tested in the wilderness... His real humanity was put to the test. And amongst all the temptations that were there in those 40 days, it concludes that period with three specific temptations. One was bodily. One was physical. The other was moral. The other was spiritual. That's why the writer to the Hebrews can say he was tested in all points like as we are, apart from sin. That's how we are. That's how we work. And so the man has failed. Male. The male has failed. He's failed big time. Because he should have been aware that when the serpent began to speak to his wife, he should have been monitoring it. He should have been listening in. He'd become complacent. He'd forgotten that God had put him in the garden to keep it. And that's why he was told to guard it, was because sin had already originated in heaven, and God knew full well that the devil would make his intrusion into the earth. Adam, guard it. Be on on your guard, Adam. And he wasn't. And that principle of headship was attacked, and that principle of headship failed. And sin came into the world. And death by sin. I feel sure myself that this is why this particular principle is so much under attack today in God's assembly. In the wider world of Christendom, so-called evangelical Christians and all the differences that there are in different groups and the way that they meet and the way that they think and everything else, if there is one principle that, that almost matters more than any other in a local assembly to God, I judge it's this principle of headship. Because it's a principle that reflects who God is in himself. Because the head of Christ is God. And so this principle of headship, that the glory of headship, really the fallen world knows nothing about it. It doesn't have a, a comparable principle. It's easily confused with, but it's very different from, the principle of lordship. See, the principle of lordship is is that the glory of lordship lies in its ability to impose its will. And especially when it imposes its will legally. I mean, across the world today, there are many who are imposing their will, and they've got no moral right to do it. (coughs) But for example, as a consequence of the Lord humbling himself, Philippians 2, God has made a solemn promise that as a result of the self-humbling of Christ, God has said, now every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's lordship. Absolute. It has the power to enforce its will and it has the right to enforce its will. That's the lordship of Christ. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. But the glory of headship is very different. The glory of headship lies 
in the willing submission to divine order. The willing submission to divine order. So the Lord Jesus said, who is co-equal with the Father, co-eternal, is nothing less than God in all his totality. But when the Lord Jesus came here, he said, I have come to do the will of the Father. There's a submission there. There's no change in status, but there is a willing submission to the divine order of things. That's the glory of headship. And because we're made in the likeness of God, God has given to to the man and the woman this same principle of headship. He says, look, you're both equal, the male and the female, but the male alone is accountable to me. Therefore, the woman, realizing that, will readily submit herself to the will of the man. Now, before sin came into the world, that wasn't a problem. The, 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 the marriage of Adam and Eve, we'll think about it more tomorrow, God willing, or Friday, perhaps, when we consider the bride. It must have been the most wonderful marriage that there ever was. A man who intuitively knew and met all the needs of his woman. And a woman who likewise intuitively understood and met all the needs of her man. It all went desperately wrong. We'll think about it, God willing, on Friday. And as a consequence, almost every society in the world now, some more than others, has at least got a history, if they're not actually today, guilty of terrible repression as far as their women are concerned. And it's, it's all to do with this breakdown in the divine order of things. Now, as believers in the Lord Jesus, and particularly as those who gather in local assemblies uh, to witness to the glory of God, one of the first principles uh, enjoined upon us in the letter to the Corinthians is the acknowledgement of the headship of Christ. That is, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, teaches us this great principle and gives us the power and the ability and the desire to observe it. Now, my wife's not able to be with me while I'm here, but um, when we're in the home environment... If she refused to acknowledge my headship, thank God she doesn't, but if she did, if she refused to acknowledge my headship, what can I do about it? Because the moment I try and enforce it, it becomes lordship. You can't enforce headship. Why is it called headship? Well, that even goes back to the way God designed you and me, doesn't it? We were thinking about the body last night. How does my body work? I'm speaking to you. I mean, thank God I'm a healthy man. I thank God for it every day. I'm a healthy man. I have a coordinated body. So even as I'm speaking to you, there are thoughts in my mind and perhaps emotions in my heart and and the brain is generating the words and the vocal cords are generating the sounds and at the same time, my body, I'm conscious, I'm using hands and face and, uh, and the body language is supporting the vocal language and the whole thing, what's controlling it? My head. It's controlling it all. But what if the head directed this hand to move? What if the, what if the head directed this hand to clench into a fist. Nothing happened. What can the head do to enforce it? Nothing. It's where your body's made. You say, yeah, but you could do that. Sure, that's the head telling this hand to assist it by doing that. But what can the head do? It can do nothing. The head directs, it coordinates, It originates, it controls, but it can't enforce. See that? That's true, isn't it? That's the way our body works. And we have a head and he's Christ. 
and he directs and he controls. And that which he wills should be worked out through his people. What happens if we don't do it? Now, of course, he could enforce. But the moment he enforces, he's enforcing his lordship, not his headship. The glory of headship lies in submission. And the headship of the woman to the man, the glory of it lies in her submission. That's why this rebellious, godless world doesn't know anything of it. It hasn't got a principle like that. Two people of equal status and yet one submits to the other. Isn't this godless world all about your rights? Back home, we've got the ludicrous situation that we have convicted terrorists walking the streets of our country and we can't deport them and we can't imprison them because some guy in a funny outfit in Brussels has decided he's got his rights. When I first came into fellowship in the local assembly in Peterborough, England, we just got married, and uh, we moved into the assembly in Peterborough, a dear brother said to me on the first day I was there, an old man, he came over deliberately and he shook my hand. He said, young brother, very nice to have you with us. I said, thank you. He said, I've been in this assembly for 58 years. I said, wow, that's a long time. Yes, it is, son, he said, but, but listen, I want you to understand one thing. On the first day that you're here, he said, you might only be a young man, and I've been in this assembly for 58 years. He said, but you have got exactly the same rights in this assembly as I have. I said, wow, really? Yes, he said. Absolutely none. Well, that was me stuffed back in my box before I'd even climbed out of it. What a dear brother. You see, he was just, he was just letting me see that in God's assembly, we've none of us any right. It's not about rights. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. And it's all about our willing submission to him. And the glory of headship lies in our willing submission to Christ. And God said this this principle was the one that was broken and went so badly wrong and brought sin into the world. So one of the first things I want to happen in a local assembly of my believing people, I want that principle displayed. I want that principle observed, but I also want it displayed because, he said, I have this angelic realm up here where sin originated, and I want them to see that in the world of men and in amongst those whom I have redeemed, that the order that one of them overthrew has now been restored and observed on earth. And that's why Paul says that for this cause shall a woman have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. The covered head of the woman and the uncovered head of the man is making a statement right now to the angelic realm of heaven to say that here is a company of believers in the Lord Jesus and we recognize first and foremost the headship of Christ. I believe that's why that principle is so much under attack today. Because it seems in some companies they will say, you can believe anything almost, you can teach anything almost, but don't have the women cover their heads. Where does that originate from? Not from our Bible. It originates from the same adversary through whom sin came into the world in the first place. And I would, I would hope that the dear women here tonight would understand that far from being some archaic tradition of the brethren or some kind of weird hangover because Paul didn't like women, it is, it is very, very much a tremendous, positive, dignified, holy ministry of the dear women, as well as us men. But, but for us, of course, in this society, we don't normally cover our heads in a company anyway. But for the women to do so, is to acknowledge before the local assembly has begun to do anything else at all, it is acknowledged that amongst this company of Christians, the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ is acknowledged. So, I didn't get as far tonight as I thought we might, but God willing, we'll continue tomorrow. And if you're able to come back, we'll move on from the thought of the body and of the head 
we'll move into the realms of the building of Ephesians 2 and Genesis 1, and then we'll also, on Friday, God willing, be thinking about the bride. So we trust that God will give us help in those evenings, and if you're able to join us, we'd be delighted to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. Shall we pray?